Chapter Nine of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Nine: The Campaign Against Pope. Richmond, July 4, 1862. My dearest Pauline, I reached our wagon camp near Richmond about twelve o'clock Tuesday, and as the battle of Malvern Hill was raging below did not go to Richmond. I came up to get my horse shod. McClellan has retreated about thirty-five miles, and is now under cover of his gunboats on James River. McClellan is badly whipped. Richmond, July 7, 1862. My dearest Pauline, I came up to Richmond yesterday from our camp below. Our army has now fallen back near Richmond, as we could not attack McClellan under his gunboats. It was no use keeping our army so far off from supplies. I have just returned from an expedition down James River where I succeeded, with half a dozen men, in breaking up an assemblage of Negroes and Yankees. They were armed. It is an open secret that in August 1862 the disobedience of two Confederate generals saved Pope's army in Virginia from ruin and nearly resulted in the capture of the Confederate Chief of Cavalry. But historians have been strangely silent about it. I had a part in the play, and I take more pleasure in telling about it now than I did when I was an actor in the great drama. In war there are lights mingled with shadows. In the retrospect we see a great deal of the comedy where once all seemed to be tragedy. After the seven days' battles around Richmond, that closed on July 1, several weeks of calm succeeded. McClellan had shifted his base from the Pamunkey to the James, and both armies rested for another collision. If McClellan had possessed the intuition of Grant, he would not have halted on the bank of the river, but would have crossed and seized the communications of the Confederate capital. General John Pope had been called from the west to take command of an army in front of Washington. This army was organized mostly from fragments which Jackson had overlooked in the Shenandoah Valley. Pope came east with some reputation, but he soon lost it. Pope opened his campaign in northern Virginia with a bombastic manifesto that, by an invidious comparison, gave offence to his own side and amusement to ours. He was, however, unjustly criticised for declaring that his army should subsist on the country it occupied. That is a right as old as war, to live on the enemy. I did the same thing whenever I could. Pope declared that in the West he had seen only the backs of his enemies, and that he would look only to his front and let his rear take care of itself but he must be acquitted of the charge, so often repeated, of having said that his headquarters would be in the saddle. I know that it is no use to deny it now. It is part of our mythology, and the people of Virginia believe it as religiously as they do the legend of Pocahontas. It is said that even so grave a person as General Lee made humorous remarks about this proclamation. But what interested me most in this proclamation was the following. I hear constantly of taking strong positions and holding them, of lines of retreat and bases of supplies. 
Let us dismiss such ideas. Let us study the probable lines of retreat of our opponents, and leave our own to take care of themselves. Let us look before us, and not behind. At this time I was at Cavalry Headquarters, in Hanover County, about ten miles from Richmond. When I read what Pope said about looking only to his front, and letting his rear take care of itself, I saw that the opportunity for which I had longed had come. He had opened a promising field for partisan warfare, and had invited, or rather dared, anybody to take advantage of it. The cavalry at Richmond was doing nothing but picket duty, and quiet to quick bosoms as a hell. So I asked Stuart for a dozen men to make the harvest where the laborers were few, and do for Pope what he would not do for himself, take care of his rear and communications for him. Stuart was, of course, well disposed to me. He had spoken well of me in his report of his ride around McClellan on the Chickahominy, and generally had also mentioned me in his general order announcing it to the army. I really thought that there was a chance to render effective service. I had served the first year of the war in a regiment of cavalry in the region which was now in Pope's department, and had a general knowledge of the country. I was sure then, I am sure now, that I could make Pope pay as much attention to his rear as his front, and then I could compel him to detail most of his cavalry to guard his long line of communications, or turn his commissary department in rear over to me, which would have been perfectly satisfactory to me. There never was afterwards such a field for partisan war in Virginia. Breaking communications is the chief work for a partisan. It defeats plans and starts confusion by destroying supplies, thus diminishing the offensive strength of an army. Judged in the light that is before us now, it looks strange that I was refused. Stuart told me that he was getting his cavalry ready for the active campaign soon to begin, but that he would give me a letter to Jackson, who no doubt would give me the men I wanted. I had to beg for the privilege of striking the enemy at a vulnerable point. If the detail had been given me, I would have started directly to cross the Rapidan to flank Pope, and my partisan war would have begun then. I accepted the letter to Jackson, the best I could get, and with a club-footed companion, and exempt from military service, I started off. I was so anxious to be at work that I concluded to go by rail, and arrange with Jackson for the cavalry to go with me. We spent the night with a farmer near Beaver Dam Station, on what is now the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. I sent my companion on to lead my horse to Jackson's headquarters, and went to the depot. I laid down my pistols and haversack that had the letter to Jackson. The man leading my horse had scarcely gotten out of sight when somebody exclaimed, "'Here they are!' A regiment of northern cavalry was not a hundred yards away, coming up at a trot. I ran, but they caught me and got my pistols and haversack. This capture apparently blasted my hopes, especially when I was sent to the old capital prison in Washington. But an exchange of prisoners was agreed upon the next day. I was captured by a New York regiment, the Harris Cavalry. It had ridden all night to break the communications between Lee and Jackson. The men did not wait for my train, although I told them it could be taken with impunity. It was not true, but I suppose I was justified by the code of war. 
I was taken to General King's headquarters at Fredericksburg and very kindly treated. He let me write a letter to my family, which he sent through the lines. Some letters were captured at the depot. General King read one aloud. Everybody laughed. It was from a Richmond girl to her country cousin. I remember four lines. I hope they won't shock people who read them now. Jeff Davis is our president. Lincoln is a fool. Jeff Davis rides a white horse. Lincoln rides a mule. A History of the Harris Cavalry says, At six o'clock on the evening of July 19th, the Harris light was set in rapid motion almost directly south. By means of a forced march through the night, at gray dawn of morning we descended upon Beaver Dam Depot on the Virginia Central, like so many ravenous wolves. During an affray we captured a young Confederate, who gave his name as Captain John S. Mosby. By his sprightly appearance and conversation he attracted considerable attention. He is slight but well-formed. He has a keen blue eye and a blonde complexion, and displays no small amount of southern bravado in his dress and manners. His grey plush hat is surmounted by a waving plume, which he tosses, as he speaks, in real Prussian style. He had a letter in his possession from General Stuart, commending him to the kind regards of General Jackson. Old Capitol Prison, Washington, July 23, 1862 My dearest Pauline, I wrote you from Falmouth, opposite Fredericksburg, announcing my capture by the enemy's cavalry at Beaverdam. I was going up to see General Jackson for Stuart. I had a young man with me. I concluded to let him lead my horse, and I would take the train and pay you a flying visit. I had just arrived at the depot, had pulled off my arms and placed them in a storehouse, and was sitting down outdoors waiting for a train, which was due in the course of an hour, when the cavalry suddenly appeared and I had no time to escape. The colonel and captain treated me with the greatest courtesy. General King, before whom I was carried, ordered my arms to be restored to me. In my haversack was a letter from General Stuart introducing me to General Jackson. You need feel no uneasiness about me. Colonel Davis, who captured me, offered to lend me Federal money. I thanked him, but declined. I had been a prisoner about ten days when I was taken, with a good many prisoners, down the Potomac to Fortress Monroe. Here we waited four days for others to arrive, that we might go up the James River to the place of exchange. When we arrived at Hampton Roads I saw a large number of transports with troops lying near. As a prisoner I kept up my habits as a scout, and soon learned that they were Burnside's troops who had just come from North Carolina. If they were reinforcements for McClellan it would indicate that he would advance again on Richmond from his new base on the James. On the other hand, if they sailed up the Chesapeake it would show that they were going to join Pope, and that McClellan would be withdrawn from the peninsula. This was the problem that I had to solve. It was a pivotal point in the campaign. There were several officers of high rank among the prisoners, but I did not communicate my purpose to anyone, for fear my secret work might leak out, with the result that we should be detained. I was, however, much surprised that none of them seemed to regard what was before their eyes as of any significance. On the fourth day several steamers with prisoners came from their places of confinement in the north, anchored near us. 
and I was told that we were to start that evening up the James River, to the point where the commissioners would meet for the exchange. During the day I saw the transports with Burnside's troops weighing anchor and passing out by the fort. I had become pretty well acquainted with the captain of the steamer that brought us down from Washington, and found out that he was a Confederate in sympathy, so when he was going ashore for his orders I asked him to find out where the transports were going. When he returned he whispered to me that Aquia Creek on the Potomac was the point. That settled it. McClellan's army would not advance but would follow the transports northward. I was feverish with excitement and anxiety to carry the news to General Lee, but nobody suspected what I had discovered, nor did I hear any comment on the movement of Burnside's troops. I was so restless that I sat nearly all night on the deck of the steamer, watching for the day star. Early in the morning we arrived at the landing, and I was the first to jump ashore. As I was in a hurry, and afraid of being detained by some formality in exchanging, I whispered to the Confederate Commissioner that I had important information for General Lee, and asked him to let me go. He made no objection. It was a hot day in August, and I set out alone to walk twelve miles to headquarters. Someone in Washington had given me a patent-leather haversack and a five-dollar greenback. The latter I had invested in lemons at Fortress Monroe, for the blockade kept them out of Virginia. After trudging several miles I was so exhausted and footsore that I had to lie down by the roadside. But I held on to my lemons. A horseman, one of Hampton's legion, came along, and I told him how anxious I was to get to General Lee. He proved a benefactor indeed, for he put me on his horse, walked to his camp with me, got another horse, and rode to General Lee's headquarters with me. I wish I knew his name, for I have always thought his conduct was one of the most generous deeds of the war. When we reached headquarters I dismounted and told a staff officer, who was standing on the porch, that I had important information for General Lee, and wished to see him. As I was roughly dressed and unkempt, no doubt the officer thought I was presumptuous to ask the privilege. In the imperious tone customary with staff officers, he said that I could not see the general. I protested that I must, but he would accept no explanation. So I turned to leave, but another officer, who had overheard what I had said, told me to wait. He went inside the house, but soon came out and told me to go inside. I did so, and found myself in, what was then to me, the awful presence of the Commander-in-Chief. We had never met before, but I was soon relieved of embarrassment. General Lee's kind, benevolent manner put me at my ease. I found him looking over a map on the table. As quickly as I could, I told him that Burnside's troops had been sent to Pope. I then said that he did not know what confidence he could put in my report and told him my name and that I was on Stuart's ride around McClellan. Oh, he said, I remember. After I had finished my story, he asked me a few questions. I remember very well that he inquired on what line I thought the next movement against Richmond would be made, and that I considered it a high compliment that he should ask my opinion on such an important matter. He then called one of his staff into the room and told him to have a courier ready to go to General Jackson. At that time Jackson was about eighty miles west of Richmond, on the railroad near Gordonsville, 
but ever since the affair at Beaver Dam, Lee had been afraid to trust the telegraph, and kept a relay line of couriers. As soon as Jackson got the news about Burnside, he hastened to strike Pope at Cedar Mountain, before reinforcements could reach him. Richmond, August 6, 1862. My dearest Pauline, I arrived here yesterday evening. I came by flag of truce steamer, landed twelve miles below Richmond, and had to walk all the way up. My feet were so sore I could scarcely stand. As soon as I got here I went out to see General Lee, as I had a good deal of very important information to give him. I brought information of vital importance. The Comte de Paris said in his History of the Civil War in America, So long as Burnside and the fleet of transports which lay in readiness to ship his troops remained at the mouth of the James, whence they could proceed either to Harrison's Landing or to Aquia Creek, it was evident to Lee that the movement of the Federals had not yet been determined upon. Accordingly he sought with particular care for every item of intelligence calculated to enlighten him as to the design of his adversaries. Finally, one evening, on the 4th or 5th of August, a small steamer bearing a flag of truce was seen coming up the James, passing the Confederate outposts and approaching Aiken's Landing, a place designated for the exchange of prisoners. In the midst of the soldiers, whose grey coats were worn out by long confinement, and the sick and wounded, to whom the thought of freedom restored both strength and health, an officer was making himself conspicuous by his extreme anxiety to land. His face was well known to every Virginian, and his name to all his companions in arms. It was the celebrated partisan, Colonel John Mosby. His eagerness, which everybody attributed to his ardent temperament, was very natural for he had news of the greatest importance to communicate to Lee. A few hours later he was at the headquarters of his chief, to whom he made known the fact that at the very moment when he was leaving Hampton Roads, that same morning, the whole of Burnside's corps was being embarked, and that its destination, as he knew positively, was Aquia Creek. Lee lost no time in availing himself of this information, which chance had opportunely thrown into his hands. When I rose to leave General Lee, at this my first meeting with him, I opened my haversack and put a dozen lemons on the table. He said I had better give them to some of the sick and wounded in the hospitals, but I left them and bade him good-bye. I had little expectation of ever seeing him again. I went to see Stuart, who was still in Hanover, and then went home to get my horse. I reached the army again on August 17 just in time to meet Stuart, who had come by rail from Richmond, leaving Fitz Lee to bring up the cavalry. By this time it was plain that McClellan was about to leave the peninsula, so that General Lee was concentrating on the Rapidan. Stuart had just had a conference with General Lee, and had received his final instructions. He did not say what they were, but the coming event cast its shadow before. Stuart was to meet Fitz Lee at Verdiersville, and I went with him. I had no arms, I had lost my pistols when I was captured at Beaver Dam, but trusted to luck to get another pair. On the way to meet Fitz Lee, we passed Longstreet's camp. The soldiers knew instinctively that a movement was on foot. They were cooking their rations for a march, and singing Annie Laurie. 
We reached the appointed rendezvous that night, but found a deserted village. There were no signs of the cavalry, and Stuart was greatly disappointed, and worried, for the operation, which had been planned for the next morning, depended on the cavalry. I did not then suspect how much depended on meeting the cavalry, and how much was lost by its absence. It was the crucial point of the campaign. A staff officer, Major Fitzhugh, went in search of Fitz Lee, and Stuart and I tied our horses and lay down to sleep on the porch of a house by the road. Before sunrise I was awakened by a young man, Gibson, who had just come with me unarmed from prison. He said that he had heard the tramp of cavalry down the plank road, that it was probably Fitz Lee, but it might be Yankee cavalry. Although we were near the Rapidan, we thought we were inside of Longstreet's picket line, but I did not want to be caught napping again. So I awoke Stuart and told him what we had heard, and that Gibson and I would ride down the road to see what was there. We soon saw a body of cavalry that had stopped at a house a few hundred yards away. A heavy fog made it impossible to distinguish friends from foes. But we were soon relieved of doubt. Two cavalrymen saw us and rode forward. When they got in pistol range they opened fire. That settled it. We knew they were not our friends. As Gibson and I had no arms there was nothing for us to do but wheel and run, which we did, and used our spurs freely. The firing gave the alarm and saved Stuart. He mounted his horse, bareheaded, leaped the fence in the back yard, and got away. But he left his hat. Before Gibson and I got to the house where we had slept, a Prussian on Stuart's staff dashed through the front gate and went down the road ahead of us as fast as his horse could carry him. We never overtook him. After the war he published a lot of fables in which he described an encounter he had with the Yankees that morning as more wonderful than the feat of St. George and the Dragon. Our ambition was to escape. We ran as fast as we could, but the Prussian ran faster. That was all the distinction he won. Pope had advanced to the line of the Rapidan, with his army stretched across the Orange and Alexandria Railway, which was his line of supply. His forces were massed near the river. Lee, with Jackson and Longstreet, was in Orange County, a few miles to in his front. Our cavalry picketed the south bank of the river. As late as the 17th Pope did not know, and this was the evening before he retreated in such a hurry, that Lee had arrived with Longstreet. He thought Jackson was at Gordonsville, twenty miles south. Pope spoke of crossing the river and making a demonstration towards Richmond. He told Halleck, Our position is strong, and it will be very difficult to drive us from it. A worse position for an army could not have been selected for Pope by an enemy. He urged Halleck to let him cross the river and take the offensive, but the latter would not consent. General Lee never again had such an opportunity to destroy an army. It would have been easy, on that day, to pass around under cover of Clark's Mountain, that is on the south bank of the Rapidan, cross at the fords below, and strike Pope both in flank and rear at the same time. It was particularly so, as Pope had said he would look only to his front. The fact is, the railroad turns east at such an angle in Culpeper that, after crossing the river below Pope, Lee's army would have been nearer the Rappahannock Bridge than Pope's army was. 
his railroad communications with Washington would have been seized, and reinforcements from McClellan cut off. According to Pope's dispatches of that day to Halleck, there was no sign of a movement to cross the Rapidan. He was anxious to attack Jackson. By an accident Pope was rudely awakened from his dream of security. John C. Ropes, the historian, wrote, Hence, when we saw him, Pope, quickly occupying the line of the Rapidan, Lee at once saw his opportunity. He ordered Longstreet and Jackson to cross the river at Raccoon and Somerville Fords, and to move on Culpeper Courthouse, while the cavalry of Stuart, crossing further to the east at Morton's Ford, was to make Rappahannock Station, destroying the bridge there, and then turning to the left, form the right of Longstreet's corps. Pope would have been attacked on the rear and flank, and his communications severed in the bargain. Doubtless he would have made a strenuous fight, but he could hardly have escaped defeat, and defeat under such circumstances might have well have been ruined. From this disaster fortune saved Pope through the capture of Stuart's staff officer. Stuart had sent Major Fitzhugh to look for Fitz Lee, whose orders required him to be at Verdiersville the night of the 17th. The place is a few miles south of the Rapidan. Daybreak on the 18th was the day fixed for crossing the river. But Fitz Lee, as appears from Stuart's report, after leaving Hanover, instead of marching directly to the vicinity of Raccoon Ford, as he was ordered, changed his course, and turned back to follow his wagons that had been sent by Louisa Courthouse for provisions. By this detour he was a day late in reaching his destination. The delay was fatal to General Lee's plan, and saved Pope. General Lee would not make the movement without his cavalry, but Jackson wanted to go on without it. Major Fitzhugh, while looking for Fitz Lee, was captured on the night of the 17th by a body of cavalry that had been sent over the river on a scout. It was the same body that came so near getting us the next morning. They got Lee's letter to Stuart that disclosed his plan to cross on the morning of the 18th and flank Pope. This dispatch was sent in hot haste to headquarters, and created a panic. General Pope, in his report, spoke of the capture of this letter as the cause of his hasty and unpremeditated retreat. He said the cavalry expedition he sent out captured the adjutant-general of Stuart, and was near capturing that officer himself. Among the papers taken from him was an autographed letter of General Lee to General Stuart, which may manifest the disposition and force of the enemy, and their destination to overwhelm the army and my command before it could be reinforced by any portion of the Army of the Potomac. But Fitz Lee was not alone responsible for General Lee's failure to envelop Pope. General Longstreet said that, as the cavalry had not come up on the 17th, he ordered two regiments of Toombs Brigade to be sent to guard the Rapidan Fords. Toombs had ridden from his headquarters to have dinner with a farmer. When the order came, his next in rank ordered the detail to be sent. When Toombs learned what had been done without asking him, he ordered the regiment back to their camp. So the fords were unguarded, and Pope's cavalry crossed without giving any alarm, captured Stuart's staff officer with General Lee's order, and saved Pope's army. 
Longstreet put Toombs under arrest, but Fitz Lee was not relieved of his command. In the midst of the Battle of Manassas, a few days later, Toombs rode up to Longstreet and begged to lead his brigade. Longstreet relented, and Toombs led his men into battle. So it seemed that General Pope was saved by a comedy of errors. General Lee had to wait for his cavalry to come up, but when they came the opportunity was gone. If Toombs had not withdrawn the picket from the Rapidan, the Union cavalry could not have crossed. If Fitz Lee had disobeyed orders, even if the cavalry had crossed, they would have been caught. By this combination of errors Pope got warning and lost no time in getting away. I rode with Stuart to the signal station on Clark's Mountain, where we could see Pope's army retreating and his trains scudding back to the Rappahannock. General George Gordon, who was with Pope, said, Without delay the retreat began, by rail and along the roadways, in cars and in baggage wagons, from Mitchell's Station and Culpeper Courthouse, vast stores of subsistence, forage, and ammunition streamed out for the left bank of the Rappahannock. The Confederates were disappointed. Many of them scolded bitterly. Rarely had a better opportunity offered for the destruction of an army. Dabney, Jackson's staff officer and biographer, in an account of the campaign written when it was fresh in memory, said that the plan of the commander-in-chief was for the movement to begin at dawn on the 18th, but was defeated by dilatory subordinates, and that he overruled the eagerness of Jackson and postponed it until the 20th. It was then, he wrote, most fortunate that Jackson was not in command. A few days afterwards Stuart went on a raid around Pope. As he galloped by me, he said, I'm going after my hat. Sure enough, he captured Pope's headquarters wagons, with the hat and plume and full-dress uniform, besides his money chest. Stuart was now at least even with Pope. Drainsville, September 5, 1862 My dearest Pauline, Our arms have been crowned with a glorious victory, Second Battle of Manassas and Chantilly. Our army is now marching on towards Leavesburg, and we all suppose it will cross into Maryland. I have escaped unhurt, though I got my horse slightly shot in the shoulder, and had a bullet through the top of my hat, which slightly grazed my head. I have a very good Yankee horse, also two fine saddles and two pistols I captured. With one man I captured seven cavalry and two infantry. Colonel Mosby accompanied Stuart on the fall campaign, which culminated in the Battle of Antietam. Of this campaign Mosby noted two incidents as follows. I rode just behind Jackson when he marched at the head of his columns through Frederick City, Maryland, in September 1862, with his band playing My Maryland. But I never heard the story of Barbara Fritchie shaking the stars and stripes in his face until I read Whittier's poem. I am sorry this story is a myth, for as the poet tells it, the respect which the Confederates showed her was a great contrast with the treatment and order of a certain general required to be shown to a woman who, by word, sign, or gesture, should be disrespectful to the U.S. soldier or flag. I only once saw Stonewall Jackson in battle. At Antietam I rode with Stuart by some batteries where Jackson was directing their fire on the flank of a column that was advancing against him, 
and I stopped a minute to look at the great soldier, who was by then transfigured with the joy of battle. In a quiet way he was giving orders. McClellan had sent three corps in succession against him, Hooker's, Mansfield's, and Sumner's, and each in turn was repulsed. While I was near him, the last onset was made, but Jackson held the same ground at sunset that he held in the morning. I rode on and overtook Stuart, but the killed and wounded were strewn on the ground like leaves of the forest which autumn hath blown, and I had to be careful not to ride over them. Whole ranks seemed to have been struck down by a volley. Although hundreds were lying all around me, my attention was in some way attracted to a wounded officer who was lying in an uncomfortable position and seemed to be suffering great agony. I dismounted, fixed him more comfortably, and rolled up a blanket on which he rested his head, and then got a canteen of water for him from the body of a dead soldier lying near him. As I passed a wounded soldier, I held the canteen toward him, so that he could drink. He said, No, take it to my colonel. He is the best man in the world. This was a speech worthy of Sidney, the model of chivalry. End of chapter.